This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now, this week we're uncovering more of the secrets of Hadrian's Wall in northern England. Back in the first century, this was the most northerly frontier of the Roman Empire, with 16 forts incorporated along the length of the wall. Joining me to discuss the history of those under English Heritage's care is Properties Curator Mark Douglas. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I understand there's a pretty good reason why we're focusing on the story of the forts. Today, it follows an English Heritage new acquisition. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, we were very, very fortunate at the beginning of the year. It was like a late Christmas present to English Heritage that a new fort was gifted to the nation and we're basically going to look after it on their behalf. And what is the name of this fort? Well, there's, there lies a question. We call it Carabruff Roman Fort, but it's also been known as Brocalicia and sometimes Procalicia. So we have a bit of a mystery how are we going to sort that one out, but um, at the moment we're going with Carabruff. It's worth spelling out for listeners as well if they're interested in finding it. It's C-A-R-R-A-W. B-U-R-G-H, as in, yeah. like, like Edinburgh. Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, potentially very confusing for foreign listeners, so do apologise yeah. to our international <laughs> listeners. Anyway, Indeed. now, whereabouts is Carabruff? What number is it if we're looking on a map left to right of the north if of England? Normally, to be honest, we normally measure the wall from right to left. We start at Newcastle and then we measure that way along. That's where the forts, the, the mile castles are measured. But from west to east, it would be number 10. And from east to west, it's number six. Right. The forts on the wall. And who gifted it to the nation? Was it a landowner or...? Yeah, it was a lady called Jenny Duquesne. It's been in their family since the 1950s. Apparently her father was quite keen to uh, put it forward for the nation. And one thing lived to them, and basically it's come to the point where Mr. Kane has decided the time is right, and she's made this most generous donation of this very important monument, actually. Why did they decide to do that then? Was it just easier for someone else to handle? Well, I think not so much easier, because it has always been open to the public. I think uh, Mr. Kane is basically sort of making sure that this, this thing's going to be cared for in the future and not be, uh, you know, not be neglected. And hopefully, once things get back to normal after this coronavirus, we can get stuck in there and start making plans for the place. Mm. How large is this then? Because I understand that there are obviously 16 forts along the length of Hadrian's Wall, but they vary in size, I presume. How big is this one? It's difficult to measure because it's obviously it's, it's an earthwork, but it's around about two hectares, probably slightly just under two hectares. That's almost five acres then, so a pretty large space. Yeah, well, I mean, these Roman forts were designed to uh, accommodate a good sizely troop of men, so uh, yeah, it needs to be quite sizable. So we've established whereabouts it is in the line of forts. Can you tell us when Carabriff was created relative to the other forts? Yeah, indeed. The forts along the wall itself were not designed as the initial conception of the wall. The wall was itself an entity. The forts were added later, although quite soon afterwards. And Carabriff itself was one of the later ones, but it was only between 129 and 130 AD, which is only between 8 and 10 years after the wall was conceived as a project. And in this sort of five-acre site, what are the main features? You talked about mostly an earthwork, 
But do we see any other sort of features like stone and... To be fair, there's very little. There's a tiny little amount of stone that was um, revealed in the earlier excavation in the late 70s, uh, so the late 60s, early 70s, but not much at all. The vast majority of the thing is just basically an earth-covered mounds and very indistinguishable. You can see the outline of the fort itself, and on the west side, there's some remnants of ditches. looks like there's a triple ditch around the whole thing itself, which is quite distinctive. Outside the fort, of course, there's other stuff. I think I saw a YouTube video of a visitor who had stumbled upon what appeared to be a partial building. I believe it might have had an altar in it. Is that right? That's right. Just outside, the, just outside of the fort, which is already a proper, it's in state care, so it, the English heritage do look after it, is what they call the Temple of Mithras. It's a Mithraeum. It's a, uh, a temple to a Persian deity that was widely... Um, worshipped in the in the Roman army in the late sort of third, fourth century. Just south of the fort there's a Mithraeum. There's a Mithraeum on other sites as well. There's a Mithraeum at, at Housesteads, there's temples elsewhere, but this one's the best preserved. It's up in the public and people can see it and it's it, it's a it's a fabulous thing. Do we know how Carabra Fort would have been used at the time? Would it have followed the same pattern as the other forts along the wall? Yeah, well to a certain extent the fact is that we may, may not have mentioned that the forts are all different sizes along the wall. There's, there's certain discrepancies in the sizes, and some of this might be to do with the fact that they held different types of units. It looks like Carabruff was an infantry unit, so auxiliary soldiers, uh, men-at-arms, whereas President Chester was a cavalry fort, so cavalry units, and they were slightly larger, as you can well imagine, than they need more space. Need horses and stables in, and that sort of thing. Indeed, yeah. So not much, I guess, really survives of Carabruff today. But will there be a plan to excavate and unearth some of the mysteries under that earthwork? Well, it's a difficult one because the problem with archaeology is it's extremely expensive, extremely destructive. And also it needs to be justified in terms of how much information you're going to get back from it that's new to us. Um, we do know what's inside that fort. There will be a commandant's house, there'll be barrack buildings, there'll be the four main gates, curtain wall... There's granaries, hospital possibly, you know, latrines. So we know what's in there. Each fort does have slight distinctive things. So, you know, we do find certain things in certain forts that we haven't found evidence elsewhere, though we haven't found it yet. There's that implication that there's a justification that needs to be thought about about how much you dig up that we already know about. And second, like I say, it's very expensive and it takes a lot of planning and we need really to know an awful lot more about it before we'd even undertake that. So there's certain techniques we could use to explain us a bit more about the earthworks themselves and what may be under the ground. So there's no real plans at the moment to excavate, but there's plans to do lots more further research. And if something comes out of that, well, we never will see in the future. Perhaps geophysical surveys, that sort of thing? Indeed, geophysical surveys is one of the things we really do need to look at. There is actually a bathhouse outside of the fort that was excavated in the little part of the 19th century and the location which has been lost. So we probably could find that as well, <laughs> hopefully. That would be a bonus, I must admit. Yeah. <laughs> it would, it would, yeah. Well, make sure everyone stays subscribed to the podcast to keep up to date with the latest developments at Carabruff then. Let's have a look at some of the other key forts of Hadrian's Wall. But before we do, just remind us about the wall itself, the key facts and stats. How many miles does it stretch and from where to where and how tall was it? The wall itself is 73 miles. That's 73 imperial miles. And it stretches from Newcastle, the Wall's End, obviously, to Bourdes on Solway. And the height at its it, peak? 
it's been estimated as four metres high to what they call the wall walk. That's the part of the wall you would actually patrol on, the piece you would walk along. Above that, we don't know, because obviously we don't know whether it was whether it had castellations, whether it was a level parapet, we don't know. But we're going to assume it was another, say, a metre and a half higher than that, so say five and a half metres in total. When did work start on Hadrian's Wall then, and, and how long did the project take? The work on the, the start of Hadrian's Wall in 122 AD, following a visit to Britannia by the Emperor Hadrian. Hadrian decided that he was going to follow along the lines of his, his predecessor Trajan in terms of moving away from conquest of the, the Roman Empire, conquest as opposed to consolidation. And the idea of setting up a solid boundary and a solid a solid frontier was one of these taxes that they took. How long did the project take then? Well, it's been estimated between you know eight and ten years, not too long. Pretty quick, really. And were the forts built more or less at the same time as the main wall, or how did they emerge? Basically, there was a line of forts along the northern frontier that was used as a um, means of pushing the conquest on further north into Scotland. So these lines of forts were already there, particularly Carlisle and Corbridge, which were two major forts on two major routes that went up by the side of the country. As the wall was built, the decision was then made to forward the forts on. So a new fort was built along the line of the wall, we think it's probably an afterthought, but it seems that the strategically placed forts were located for the purpose of pushing forward when need be, but we'll be training back the forts when the war was over. So are you saying that these forts along that vast stretch of land was pre-existing and then the wall sort of joined into them? Is that what you're saying? No, there was a pre-existing line of forts, say Vindelanda for one, Colbridge, Carlisle. The wall was built further north, and then a line of forts was then attached to the wall eight years after the wall was conceived of. Which other sites then does uh, English heritage care for in terms of these forts? The main ones are Housteads Roman Fort, which is um, a few miles to the west of Carabruff, Chester's Roman Fort, which is a few miles to the east of Carabruff, and Bird Oswald, which is in Cumbria, which is quite a number of miles west. And we'll talk about all three of those now. Looking at the map then, these three seem to form this sort of central cluster of Roman forts along Hadrian's Wall, slightly north of between Carlisle and Newcastle, if you're drawing a diagonal line between those two locations. Did these forts, um, Bird Oswald, Housteads, Chesters, vary by size and facilities, or were they all fairly uniform? Uniform's a, a strange word. They, they are fairly uniform in a, to a sense, but there's some differences, particularly in size. Chester's being the far larger of the, of the three. And we can say that, you know, that this may reflect the troops that were actually garrisoned there. So the garrison of Chester's was actually a cavalry unit. I think it's worth pointing out as well this this point that these were not legionary soldiers. These weren't, these weren't legionaries. These were auxiliary soldiers. And these are people who were actually conscripted into the, the army from conquered territories or colonised territories. Would that have made these forts smaller or larger, bearing in mind uh, the auxiliaries? Smaller, yeah, smaller. It's smaller than the, le- the legionary forces, which were absolutely huge. You know, the one in York was enormous. So the legionary forces were much, much bigger. But there was a lot more of these spread on the wall. So there's a lot more auxiliary soldiers than our legionaries. And if you look at if you look at each fort, containing between five hundred to eight hundred men. So out of Bird Oswald, Housesteads, and Chesters, which one was the biggest? Chesters. Chesters. Yeah, because because it was a cavalry fort. And the smallest? I think Bird Oswald and Housesteads are around about the same size, about two point. three hectares, I think. So the biggest by size is Chester's, and the population as well, as a result. Do we know how many soldiers would have been stationed in each one? So Bird Oswald, Halstead's, Chester's. We do know by the fact that the names of the the, the regiments are in there, 
but the regiments weren't always fully manned up. To, so at one point, there was a regiment, a cohort at Housetest, for example, which should have 800 men in, in there, but some of the men were taken from the Danube frontier, so at that point, there was down to 490-something men. So it's, it's difficult to say. There was a, an optimum number for each unit, but whether they're all in present at the same time is difficult to say. Okay, so what was the optimum number for Bird Oswald, for example? Bird Oswald would be 800. Same with Housestead? Housesteads, yes. And Chester's also was 800. Yeah, up to, yeah, up to a, yeah, 800 up to 1,000, yeah. We've established the size of these forts, Bird Oswald, Housesteads, Chester's, their optimum size. Who was running each one? There was a chap called um, a Commandant, or a Perfectus. He was basically simply in charge of the whole place. He was drawn from the uh, the equestrian orders. He was quite a high-status character. He was the man in charge of that particular section of Hadrian's Wall, that particular fort, and each fort had its own commandant. Whereabouts would he have lived within this fortified area? He would live in the commandant's house, or the praetorium, which is um, recognised simply by the fact it's much larger than any other building to do with accommodation building in the fort. So uh, as the men lived in barracks... He lived in a lovely Mediterranean-style country house, or townhouse. If you're um, looking at the map of a bird's-eye view of one of these forts, then, would he have been sort of right in the centre as a sort of symbol of being very important, or would he have been more sort of in the suburbs? Just slightly to the south of the centre. The centre was taken, always taken up by the headquarters building, the Principia. Said Housestead, for example, his house was just slightly south of the... Uh, between the Principia and the South Gate... What facilities would his house have had? I was amazing. You think about this, that you know the way that cultures spread across Europe, particularly the Roman culture, where they don't really change a great deal. They're quite inflexible in terms of what they do in, in different parts of Europe. So he's, like I said before, he's, he's got a Mediterranean-type house, which is designed to keep cool in the Mediterranean climate, which are a central courtyard surrounded by suites of rooms. But these facilities would be toilets, latrines, uh, dining rooms, sleeping rooms, you know, reception rooms, baths, and of course the all-important hypercost, which is the hypercost is the underfloor central heating that most of these buildings had. How did that work exactly? Well, it was a bit like a hot air system where a furnace was lit outside the building and the building itself, the floors, were raised up on either stone, tile, um, small short columns. So there was a gap under the floor. And the hot air would run through the floor and then up through flues up the walls of the buildings and out to the top. So it would just keep the building nice and warm. What about the other facilities of the buildings that belong to the more average military man? <laughs> well, the two things. One is the barracks. I'd say, for example, at Housesteads there was 10 barracks, each barracks holding 80 men, obviously, because there's 800, 800 men there. And they'd be sort of pitching in to the most important buildings. After the Commandant's house is the, as I mentioned before, the Principia, which is the uh, the central building, which is a bit like, I would say, almost like a cross between a church and a town hall. It combined an administrative use where, you know, the, the men could gather in the hall, could be given orders, um, punished could be meted out. Um, it was used as a, a means of a place where payments were made, wages were paid, banking was done, so soldiers actually saved some money as well. And there was also, against one of the long walls, was a chapel for the regimental insignia, the standards. The standards were quasi-religious objects that were venerated and also in the same chapel, if we want to call that sort of temple, would be the statue of the emperor and statue of Mars. So it was, it was official state religion as well was carried out in these buildings as well. 
other than that, these buildings would have granaries, bakehouses, toilets, a fantastically um, a fantastic hospital. We have we have finds from that, and also the all the, the the famous latrines, the ones that houses again the the most famous of the lot with the uh, with the with the stone troughs and the water supply for the use of the the sponges on a stick. <laughs> all the mod cons really for yeah, the Roman yeah. Empire soldier really. Yeah. And outside, of course, the bathhouse, which is all important as well, because everybody bathed. Now, was this bathhouse run by Roman soldiers, or was it run by local people who would have been absorbed into this community as business attracted to the money of the Roman Empire there? I think because the baths were such an important facility in terms of the forts themselves, I imagine that they were probably run by the fort administration. That's not saying that, that uh, civilians wouldn't have been involved. But largely, this is quite a thriving community, slightly mixed, predominantly military. There would have also been some local people, local businesses involved. Can you give us an idea of how many local businesses would have been supporting the troops? The army itself would look after the troops. They did provide a certain amount of supplies, okay? But like all armies, particularly armies in the past, there was always camp followers and people would follow behind the troops wherever they went. So as time progressed, these settlements grew up outside the forts, cheek by jowl, right up against the walls of the fort. These were what we known as vicas or vicai in the plural. And in these vicai, there was um, every facility you could ever want for your, your wages to be spent on. There was uh, taverns, gambling halls, you know, there was food shops, there was places that would repair your armour leather shoes that sort of thing and what was also being referred to in, in some publications as ladies of entertainment right okay and was there music as well and that sort of thing yeah of course yeah there'd be every mod con everything you can possibly think of particularly in the taverns so the daily lives of the soldiers was it quite comfortable then it's not the same as fighting a battle is it you're very oh, much well, stationed in the northern outpost of the uh, roman empire you are indeed. I mean, the the one thing we always think about is every time you see pictures of the Roman army in, in the north of England, it always seems to be raining. But of course, you think on a, on a, a lovely summer's day, no better place to be than northern the northern England. It's beautiful in, the, in uh, Northumberland. So yeah, I think they were quite looked after the Vindelander tablets, which is a series of writings that come from the Vindelander fort, which is just slightly south of the wall, do have people complaining about the weather, asking for socks, you know, that sort of thing. But I think compared to the actual native population, they, they had a pretty good life. I mean, it wasn't just all sitting around twiddling the thumbs. They had to patrol the wall. The wall itself is more than just a wall. It's um, forts plus what they call mile castles, every Roman mile, with two turrets between each other. And that they had to be patrolled and you know monitored and looked after and repairs done and that sort of thing. So they had plenty to do, keep themselves busy. You mentioned the Vindelander tablets, which you can see in the British Museum, I know. Are there any other things that emerge out of that evidence that really give us an insight into what life was like along the wall, not just for soldiers, but for their families? One of the most interesting things is, is how normal it all seems, how normal it seems to us today. You know, people having parties, people having birthdays, people ordering things like we order things online. It might take a lot more, a lot longer, but, you know, supplies can move from Catrick, supplies can move, can move from Corbridge. They're a very, very sort of accessible set of documents, you know. It doesn't it doesn't seem that far removed from what we would have done if we'd have been there at the same time. You know, it doesn't seem that radical. Are there any other objects, not just letters, that tell us a story about daily life there? Strange enough, the pottery is quite interesting. I'm not a big fan of pottery myself in the normal normal times of things, but um the pottery is quite interesting. It looks like that some of the pottery that we get there, so ceramics come from all over Europe, particularly from southern Gaul. 
So there's a lot of what they call Samian wear up on the wall. But there's also some ceramics that may look like more the kind of tableware that the auxiliary troops be used to using when they lived at home. So some of the earliest troops came from Gaul, southern Gaul, okay? So that's France. But later, modern yeah, day yeah, France. South, south of France, yeah. And at later time, as more people absorbed into the empire, the crucial thing is if you joined the Roman army as an auxiliary troop, after 25 years, you're allowed to take on Roman citizenship. So that's a great incentive for people from the, the far-flung areas of the empire to join up. And it looks like these people not only come by themselves, they come with their families, their children, you know, their grandparents. And it looks like they're also bringing with them their own forms of vessels and also forms of eating and tableware. Were there other areas where this pottery came from? Yeah, we know that, uh, say, for example, Housteads, the troops there were called the Batavians. They came from modern-day Belgium. And the uh, Tungrians also came from slightly north, perhaps, of the Holland-Belgium border, all within Germania, so basically part of the empire. They wouldn't use local auxiliaries to defend parts of their, you know, the, the areas. They would move people from Britannia, Britain, elsewhere, perhaps to Germany, and the German troops overtake into Britannia to man the wall. That makes an awful lot of sense. You don't want the natives defending <laughs> the same area. Exactly. Because they yeah. could turn on you, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were quite practical in that defence. Are there any other interesting facts and stories that we know about from the people who lived and died in these locations? I understand there might have been a murder after skeletons were found at a property in Housesteads, is that right? That's right indeed, yeah. If you go to Housesteads today, you'll see that just south of the fort there's some remains, the very low wall remains, of long rectangular buildings. These are all buildings from the Vicus. These are civilian buildings that were outside the fort. And building number eight, which is known as the Murder House, was excavated in the 1930s. And you'll see, if you look at, if you go to Housesteads today, you'll, if you look at the museum at Housesteads, at the rear of the house, but sealed under some clay, was discovered two skeletons, one male and one probably female. And the male was found with a, the point of a, a knife in his ribs, so it does suggest that he was actually done away with nefariously and then buried um, under the house. Now, the thing is that you would never find a adult Roman buried within a town. You may find infants. Infants were quite often buried under houses, but everybody else was buried outside of the settlement on the roads leading in. So it looks very much as though this was a murder victim. And has there been any further research uh, since that excavation? To- no, not not on that one, not on that particular thing, no, not at all. No. Even so, that that's a fascinating insight there. Would most people have been cremated, though? Isn't that Roman tradition? Cremation, yes, indeed. And at Bird Oswald itself, we found quite a number, I think it was 42 cremation urns. The people would be burnt on a pyre, and the remains put inside a, a pot and then buried in the ground. There's a large cemetery to the west of Bird Oswald, part of which was in danger of um, falling over a cliff. So we excavated 25 metres of cemetery there in about 2009. The vast majority of those were cremation burials. Is this the one that also featured on Channel 4's time team? It did, yeah. We knew the cemetery was there and it was a big, big stability problem at Bird Oswald. That's why we decided to save the ones we could for the time being and leave them for the rest for next time. I believe, having seen that episode, that there was um, a lot of topographical change. The river is now in a different place, and that's why the land slipped away. 
Yeah, it's also the the, the land itself is um it's it's heavy clay. It's very very thick deposits of clay, which when they dry, they just sort of peel off and fall over the river. It's an ongoing problem. We're we'll, we'll going to have to face it again in sort of ten fifteen years time and and excavate some more of them presumably. So we covered pretty much the wall, life and death along Hadrian's Wall and inside its forts. What pieces of evidence do you find to be the most captivating when it comes to telling the story of Hadrian's Wall? What really affects you? As you can well imagine, I spent quite a lot of time up there. It's a very evocative part of the country, particularly with the dramatic central section of Hadrian's Wall with those um, Winston crags and you know the, the isolated forts and the wall itself. I'm always intrigued and always quite stunned about the size of the undertaking, how somebody and how some civilization could be so audacious enough to think, and it will do, we'll build a wall across that country. I mean, you know, it's not going to happen in Mexico anytime soon, but they did it, you know. And the actual size of the civil engineering, I mean, there's probably nothing as big in this country other than the major roadworks, even to this day, that's anywhere as ambitious as Hadrian's Wall was at the time, when you think about how big it was. So I'm really impressed with that. And what, and by my go-to place for anybody who wants to understand the wall is a stretch of wall between Poultress Burn, which is just across the border into Cumbria on the, the western side of the wall. Um, there's a stretch of wall there from Poultress Burn up to Bird Oswald Roman Fort. And it's effectively just over a Roman mile, because Roman miles went between... Poltus Burn is actually a, a mile castle, and there's a place called Harrow Scar, which is another mile castle, which is just very close to Bird Oswald. So you've got a Roman mile, plus a little bit more. And in that little bit of that little section, you've got every single element you could, we wish to see in, a, in the wall. The wall itself, two mile castles, turrets, a bridge... And a Roman fort. So along that little stretch, you've got every little tiny piece. You can walk it in half an hour. Plus, what I think is the most impressive thing, which didn't might not seem so impressive when I said it, is that in Poltress Burn, there's evidence for how high the wall was. A set of steps, two or three steps, um, survive the beginning, but we know the length of the staircase. So from that, we can work out how many stairs there were, how far it rose, and that's where we get the idea of, of the three meters above level for the for the wall walk. So this whole stretch of, of wall has everything everything you wish for. It's, it's a fantastical piece of um, of history. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about the forts of Hadrian's Wall, search for Hadrian's Wall on the English Heritage website. Next week, we're tracing the history of the Easter egg hunt. Some people suggest that the origins date back to the 16th century when the Protestant reformer Martin Luther started organising Easter egg hunts for his congregation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.